0: The world has got so many problems that seem at times distant from the environments that you and I may have grown up in, the same type of communities. And yet, when you look at the issues, there's so many similarities to what individuals around the world face. We all care about a better life for our families, our friends, our our children. And if you think about how to deconstruct big issues around, say, inequality or climate adaptation or conflict around the world, it's important to take a microscope as well to what's going on in your own community. And you can see some of the same issues that take place in in your own communities.
1: Welcome to Boulder, a podcast where you can learn how to change the world from the people who do. Hear from guests who are helping solve global issues like environment, health, and inequality to figure out how you can do the same. Boulder is a media platform that also includes our written content website where we post articles to help you understand and act to solve global issues. So visit us at boulder.world. That's B O L D E R dot W O R L D to learn more. Hey, friends, I'm your host, Will Fritzler, and the voice at the beginning was Provash Budden. Provash Budden is the America's regional director of Mercy Corps, one of the world's largest and most esteemed global relief and development nonprofits. Budden leads all of Mercy Corps' activity in North and South America, which includes work in five countries. The U.S., the Bahamas, Haiti, Guatemala, and Colombia, where Budden is based. At Mercy Corps, Budden leads programs in land rights, financial services, education access, economic development, violence prevention, and other areas. Budden's work with Mercy Corps and Catholic Relief Services in years prior has led him to places as varied as Honduras, China, Gaza, Sudan, and other countries in Latin America, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Budden has much to say on the challenges and potential of global development in the nonprofit world and how you can get involved. Given just how many pressing global issues he works on, we encourage you very strongly to give him a listen. Here is Provash Budden. Hi, Provash. Thanks so much for being with me. Great being with you as well. Let's start with asking a, a question about your inspiration for doing the work you do. For our listeners' reference, you joined Mercy Corps in 2008, is that right? That's correct. And you've done work, uh, of course you're based in Colombia right now, but you also did work in Honduras, China, Gaza, Sudan. And before that, you were with Catholic Relief Services for 10 years and you were posted in various places in Latin America, the Middle East, Asia. Was there a moment in one particular place that you've been based in that made your work feel worth it to you?
0: So over the past 22 years of doing this work, I've been very fortunate to be in a lot of different places that have been of interest and places that have gone through natural disasters, have gone through longer-term development issues. But I would say that, work that I did after the 2005 tsunami in South Asia and Sri Lanka and Indonesia was some of the most exciting work I've ever done. It was very fast-paced. There was so much devastation and destruction. And if you recall, just in Indonesia alone, nearly 200,000 people died from the tsunami that hit. And today, people are still recovering from the impacts of the tsunami in, in the Indian Ocean basin. In the early days, I was in Sri Lanka and I was assigned to do work on the Eastern shoreboard where the tsunami had slammed in the day after Christmas and wiped out communities and villages up to about two, three miles inland. And the devastation was horrific. I was there about six days after it happened And fortunately, there was a huge outpouring of resources and generosity from the international community, not only from our traditional donors, but from people that you know, neighbors and friends and family that wanted to give. And so the aid community at that time was very fortunate to be able to have a lot of resources at their disposal. And obviously, you want to be able to do the best you can with the resources. And one of the areas that I had focused on while I was working with CRS, with Catholic Relief Services, was on getting people back into their homes and getting housing up. And in those early days, everything was wiped out. So you're starting out with some basic tents, but you want to be able to bring people back into some normalcy as soon as possible. So we were able to mobilize what we call transitional shelter, which is basically wooden frames and and doors, thatched roofs, et cetera, in the places where they lost their homes. And this was important because we didn't want to have people move away to places that they didn't recognize or didn't know, but rather start reclaiming their lives in uh, in the homes that they lost. Imagine if you were in the U.S. and you've suffered from wildfires or earthquakes, et cetera, and you get displaced and sent from your home to another state, that's a real hard thing to go through and especially to recuperate your life. And so you want to be able to get back to normalcy in your own place as fast as possible. So we were able to do that and move into permanent housing several months later. And just seeing the progress that takes place, just physical progress of building houses and people coming back and their livelihoods getting back on track is is amazing. It's one of those places that really made it worthwhile, and where you can feel your work having impact and the transformation in people's lives taking place.
1: You mentioned the fulfilling nature of aid and relief work, and that is sort of one piece of Mercy Corps' puzzle. The other piece, as I see it, is longer-term development challenges, and you specifically work in areas like land rights, financial services, education access, and I'm curious just as to sort of step back and help our listeners to ask a basic question. What is the nature of your work at Mercy Corps? And what is the Mercy Corps perspective on how to go about aid on the one hand, but also long-term global development challenges? What does that process look like for you?
0: So Mercy Corps works in over 40 countries around the world, and we work in places where we see a lot of fragility. Fragility that stems from poor governance, from exposures to continual crisis, being natural disasters or conflict. Yet we also see a lot of opportunity, an opportunity in the sense that the people that we work with know what they need to be able to make their lives better. We play a role in being a a bridge or a connector to some degree between civil society groups, people that have organized amongst themselves, the public sector, local government, national government, and increasingly more with the private sector. And we see that when there's a crisis that does hit, there is immediate response that needs to take place to save lives. But we also want to move quickly in a trajectory that gets people to thrive as well. And it's important that our work at an aid level of just pure humanitarian assistance is also sowing the seeds for longer term development. And so, for example, if you are involved in an emergency such as an earthquake or flooding, you're trying to make sure people have enough food to eat, have access to water, have access to basic health. But while you're doing that, you want to make sure that they're also included in the decision-making and that you're setting a platform or a level field for being able to engage in improving the conditions where they are and for them to also be more resilient to the shocks that they face in their lives. And so when we look at longer-term development challenges, one of the things that we also want to address is that it's the systems and the structures in the places that we work that are some of the hardest things to change. It's the type of power dynamics that exist between the citizen, a citizen and, and their state, between men and women in society, between different ethnicities. And those take time to that takes time to address, takes time to resolve, but it's always putting people at the forefront of uh, coming up with the solutions that they think are best for their communities.
1: I think for young adults who want to help solve these long-term issues. I think going into global aid and relief is a very compelling path, but also going into this second, more longer-term development path is perhaps equally compelling. How should listeners sort of balance those two different approaches to solving global challenges, the shorter term that addresses perhaps more immediate crises like natural disasters and those longer term issues that may not manifest right away, may not prove to be solved right away, but that perhaps are more fulfilling in the long term. How do you help people sort through which of those two paths is best for them or is most compelling based on their interests?
0: What I've seen over the years is that it's hard to delink those two worlds. They come hand in hand. The root causes of what we see around our responses to humanitarian aid and assistance and the work that we do for longer term sustainable development are bound together. There are a lot of issues that face communities in terms of the access they have to resources, to financial services the information that they have, and the way that it affects them when a crisis hits is the same way and the same issues that are on the table when they're trying to look at longer-term development. It is a very holistic way that we approach our work and that I approach the work. If I'm working on a crisis, I am thinking long-term about what are the development implications. And if I'm looking at the development side, say like property rights or you know, education or other financial services. I'm also trying to understand what are we building that also helps people be resilient to those shocks and prices that could come up in the future. And so the two go hand in hand. I would say, though, for your listeners, that it's a very diverse field. And you have to also know who you are, understand your own personality. If you like being out there with the adrenaline, rush and and getting involved in emergencies that keep you up 16 hours a day to get things done. There's obviously a need for that, and there's always a time and place for that. There's other people who like thinking through the issues at a longer-term level, looking at the complexities and understanding the concepts, and taking an approach that is constructing day by day, month by month, and year by year, the type of partnerships and collaboration that is needed to be able to tackle some of the world's thorniest issues.
1: That's a great transition to the next question I had about the sorts of leadership lessons you've learned over your your 20 plus years in the aid and development world. I'm curious to know whether it's leadership lessons you think you've learned from or ones that your colleagues have displayed. What sorts of leadership qualities have you found lend themselves best to tackling, as you say, the world's thorniest issues, particularly from the aid and development perspective?
0: Leadership can be defined in so many ways. I think some characteristics that are required of this type of work include a great degree of empathy, a great degree of curiosity, and a great degree of collaboration. You can't do this work on your own. It is definitely a team effort. And the more that you have the the skills to be able to mobilize people, to set a vision, to be passionate about what you're doing, you'll be able to get more done. That said, I think some of the, the best leadership I've seen has not necessarily been within my own organization or my peers, et cetera, but the people that we serve and the type of dedication and real-life consequences that choices that they take and that we take have on their lives. And the people that are closest to the action on the front lines in the communities where we work, they, they know best. And we can't lose sight of the fact that their leadership is what counts the most. It's too often, however, that they are caught within systems that are oppressive, that don't allow them to maximize their full potential. But it's important for people in my type of job to be humble and play a servant leadership role by having the people we serve lead the work that's most relevant and effective for them.
1: That's great. Stepping back from sort of the the leadership lessons you've learned and the your general impression of the global aid and development world, I wanted to dig a little deeper into the nature of the global challenges that Mercy Corps sets out to solve. Because I think one of the biggest challenges for for me as a young adult is to hear about very macro ideas like inequality and distill those into smaller ideas that I can work on, such as land rights or financial services, as are two areas in your portfolio. How should people go about appreciating the large-scale issues, but also figuring out the more tangible and targeted ways that they can go about solving them, such as distilling them to, to simpler, not any less important, but perhaps more understandable issues like land rights, education access, things like that. How do you recommend people understand those big issues in terms of those smaller issues?
0: The world has got so many problems that seem at times distant from the environments that you and I may have grown up in, the same type of communities. And yet, when you look at the issues, there's so many similarities to what individuals around the world face. We all care about A better life for our families, our friends, our our children. And if you think about how to deconstruct big issues around, say, inequality or climate adaptation or conflict around the world, it's important to take a microscope as well to what's going on in your own community. And you can see some of the same issues that take place in, in your own communities. Now, for example, you brought up property rights. We do a lot of work in Latin America That stem from conflicts in Guatemala and Colombia around ensuring that smallholder farmers, for example, have access to property, their own property, are able to title the property and use that as an asset to capitalize on and grow their businesses and farms and be productive. Now, that may seem very distant, but if you look at something that takes place in the United States as well people need homes. We know that there's major affordability issues for housing across the United States. Not everyone has access to property. And for example, we take for granted that when a disaster hits, we have insurance to cover property. That's not always the case in other places. But we can see inequalities as well in the United States and the Western world that continue from different power structures, different wage agreements, being accessing jobs, etc. And even right now during the COVID-19 pandemic times, we see those inequalities becoming greater and greater between those that have the ability to continue their works and those that have lost jobs. And those same type of inequalities are taking place in Latin America and Asia and Africa. The same type of protests that you see about inequality in the United States are the same type of protests that you see around the world that take place every day around the streets of Latin America and Asia and Africa. And people have common issues that they're all striving for. So I think it's important that we identify our own sense of humanity with people across the globe. It's not like people are suffering in other areas, so many different things that we don't suffer. Obviously, That's not to say that Yemen is like Portland, Oregon. Obviously, they're very different, but there are power structures at play that are similar to things that we see in communities close to us.
1: I was going to ask a follow-up to that, but now I'm not going to because you answered it, where I was going to ask about how people can go about learning about these sub-issues. And I think very much the answer is to look within your community and embrace the good and the bad of what you see around you and use that to inform your worldview and then gradually step into a path that helps you scale up that knowledge and experience onto a more global level, I think is the point you made. So that's great. I wanted to step back to the topic of inequality. And I've touched several times on your portfolio and the different programs you lead within inequality. I'm curious to know for listeners who want to tackle inequality, some of the key levers that you think exist that are most important for tackling inequality on a global scale. And perhaps those are the very levers that you work on, such as land rights, financial services, violence prevention, but perhaps there are other sub-issues that you think are, are also compelling that perhaps you haven't had the means to work on. So for our listeners trying to understand global inequality writ large, what are sort of the key levers for reducing it in the biggest way possible?
0: Well, I would say that a sense of partnership with people who have solutions is critical. I think organizations like Mercy Corps in collaboration with local communities, the government, and private sector can achieve quite a lot. And I think that partnerships are a key to addressing some of the most urgent challenges of our time. If you look at inequality in itself, there are things that we are doing across the globe that mirror solutions and progress that have taken place in places like Europe and North America. One example is. The access to financial services. So many people are underbanked around the world. There's over a billion people who don't have bank accounts and they can't get credit and they can't develop their businesses and they can't save for their school and their health services and save for later on in life. And so some of the work that we do is working with the banking system and private companies and the regulations with public policy to allow more access to finance to the underserved populations who traditionally have been viewed just as a risky group. You can reach communities that are then participating in the economic health of of a place that they're in. A great example right now is with the Venezuelan migrant crisis that's taking place throughout Latin America with over 2 to 3 million Venezuelans that have left their homes, many of them are in Colombia, and there's inequalities that have surfaced between them being migrants and people in a place without a home and the rest of society. Now, we have programs where we're able to give them cash-based solutions and include them in business development opportunities and provide them legal services as well. And when you put those together with a policy from the government of Colombia that says, yes, it's important that we include these people into society because there's greater risks for them to be in the shadows, then you can really start leveraging the tools of government and financial systems to reach the most needy and get them involved in engaging with local economies. So, for example, with cash provisions that we provide, we see a number of people taking those resources and investing in small businesses, be it their little coffee cart or barbershop or any other service, and build some equity, build up a business, be able to have enough money to send back to family in Venezuela to take care of them, and also then get connected into more formal financial institutions in Colombia that lay a great groundwork for longer-term integration. So those are just some examples of things that I think we can do, but it has to be done in partnership. And it has to be done with some creativity and some innovation as well that takes some risks, but those risks are well calculated to make sure that we're creating the most um, equitable environment for people to thrive in.
1: Yeah, that captures a point that that I have thought about a lot, which is that, global challenges are global in nature, because they affect everyone, and they may not affect everyone in exactly the same way, but we have shared experiences that we can bring together in partnerships, as you mentioned, and that is arguably a far more effective path to solving them than simply working on them in isolation. I'm really curious about how that model can improve, because you've been in this space for over two decades, you've probably seen a lot of growth in how public-private-nonprofit partnerships have functioned, but I'm sure you've also seen things today that you think could improve about it. So if a listener wants to go into global aid and development, but maybe they want to make these macro-level changes to this very model of global aid and development to improve how different actors partner to tackle global challenges, what would you tell them is the important changes that need to be made in the partnership model?
0: One place to start is just on resources. Around the world, foreign aid assistance is usually a very, very, very small percentage of wealthy countries' national budgets. For example, in the United States, we spend less than 1% of our GDP on foreign assistance. And even though the U.S. is still the largest contributor, it's not at a percentage you would think that as a global leader, we would need to be able to provide to ensure transformational change does take place in many of the societies that are important to the, the global health of humanity. Other countries have some relatively larger percentages in their budgets. But overall, I would say that resources are still slim in global foreign aid and assistance. Now, the onus isn't always on governments to provide the solutions for foreign assistance. And this is where the private sector as well is key to change because many times they also are focusing on sustainability of their own business plans. But what what I think is important for change to take place is that there is a recognition that even though there's lots of private resources out there, there has to be a change in the vision and philosophy and the values of how money is invested. And that means looking at more than just a profit-led bottom line, but also social impacts as well as environmental impacts. And if we can mobilize more companies and more resources to look at a greater set of change indicators, I think that's a place to start. And I think it's important that as individuals think about all these macro issues out there, it's like, how do I get my head around this? And what can I contribute towards it? Well, I think it's important to support the type of policies that are out there that do focus on environmental and social impact, it's investing in the type of companies that have real commitments to making sure that there is an equitable distribution of resources in an impactful way of working with local communities, including them in the decision-making, and measuring the type of impact through social and environmental indicators. And that takes a great effort. There has to be a huge amount of political will, political capital to make sure that is getting done. But I think more and more we see companies understanding that their bottom line profits are also linked to better conditions for workers, for the environment, and for a just way of living and working around the world.
1: In a lot of my conversations that, Topic of political will has come up a lot. And the idea that the nonprofit sector like Mercy Corps has tremendous potential to direct private donors towards impactful causes and impactful projects. But at the same time, federal governments are extremely well endowed, their budgets are extremely large, and they have the potential to create transformational change with the stroke of a pen, basically. So I think it's important for people to understand how that political will can be generated. And I like to think of it in terms of how an average listener could maybe run for office one day with those sorts of political goals in mind. So based on who you've worked with, how does that political will for increased foreign aid spending, for a greater prioritization of global development, how does that political will be generated How is it generated and and how can people be that push uh, behind that political will?
0: So for an organization like Mercy Corps, one of the best things that we can do is be a voice for people around the world that don't have access to all the levers of, of power. And what we do is also represent what we see taking place in the places that we do work and advocate. With the US government for different policy. For example, we just led a major legislation piece around the Global Stability Act, which addresses investments from the US government and other partners towards areas of high fragility and where conflict takes place. Because it is so rife and increasing across the world, It has huge impacts on displacement of populations, on gains that have been made against anti-poverty and governance systems that are crucial for people to have long-term sustainable growth. Those are important things that we do from our side. I think for lots of other people, it's making those basic steps to call your lawmakers to support international assistance and development funding or legislation that will have global impact. It's voting for uh, politicians and lawmakers who have those type of values and vision at mind and will be instrumental in the way that government, at least in the United States, is uh, shaped to be able to have more reach and more impact for the most underserved people in the world.
1: In a lot of the conversations I've had so far, I've tried to sort through the benefits of, of going into one sector versus the other for solving global challenges. And the common answer I get is that no one sector is better than the other. They're complementary, And as you've said, they need to work in partnership in order for transformational change to take place. But for listeners who maybe want to work in global development, but don't know which sector is best for them, which best suits their skills or their interests How do you help people sort through the benefit of working in the nonprofit sector like you did with Catholic Relief Services and now with Mercy Corps, or maybe running for office, working for a government agency like USAID, or being an entrepreneur working in the private sector, maybe you start a microfinance company for the developing world. How do you sort through those three major paths and the the different benefits that each have?
0: That's a great question. You're asking, "What well, what is my purpose in life?" And I think <laughs> yeah. everyone has to answer that on their own. But I, th- I think, first of all, is as I said, said earlier, being curious about what is going on in the world is, is the first step. We live in a in a world that is so much more interconnected every year that we can't ignore what takes place in one continent without understanding its impacts about where we live. So being curious and aware of the issues around the world is is important. The the other thing is understanding where your passion is. What is it you really like to do? What is it that motivates you to get up in the morning and and go do things? And it could be very different for everyone. And I think in the global development community, there's enough space for lots of different types of expertise and lots of different types of knowledge that can be used. And so to be able to understand where you may sit in there, probably getting some exposure, even if you travel or are able to volunteer or do other work that stimulates your interest, you may be able to figure out what you want to get into. And if you're professionally inclined to get into this business, then it's taking time to decide what would be of of most interest to you and where you think you could have the most impact. And, And at the end of the day, what is fun for you to do that is also positive in the lives of other people? For example, I remember back in the early 90s, I had the opportunity to do some work through the United Nations in Malawi. And I had a series of assignments where I was out in refugee camps where Mozambicans refugees were placed after their civil war, giving out food and and aid supplements. I was also digging water wells for agriculture projects. And I also was involved in doing some work with Women's World Banking and calculating microloans for women small businesses. And I found that really interesting just because There was a huge segment of the population that couldn't get access to any money, yet here is an organization that's willing to take a risk for these very, very rural communities and individuals working and living out there. And I found it interesting that this is a whole new way of ensuring that there's segments of society that haven't traditionally been able to generate wealth that now have opportunities to do so. And it really sparked my interest in learning more about it. And so when I went to graduate school, I focused more on microfinance and um, access to finance. And over the years, I haven't done that all the time just because of different positions I've been in. But that was what sparked my interest in a sector. Something
1: about that trip, was it something there that pushed you towards the nonprofit sector in particular?
0: Not about that particular trip. I I had done some work again with the World Bank and with UNDP, but I was drawn more to the nonprofit side because of some of the agility that you have Mm -hmm. on the nonprofit side and where I was able to do some work I thought that was more flexible, a little more innovative. It had just that sandbox to play in to test yeah. out new things that sometimes you don't get in some larger institutions not that you know larger institutions aren't doing great and innovative things but at my time in my mid 20s it was more of the culture of a nonprofit and the opportunities that I had at the time that drew me more towards the nonprofit side
1: yeah that makes sense i underline that point because I think that's a great encapsulation of the benefits of working in the nonprofit world is, compared to the public sector, you use the word agility, and I think that's a great summation. You have a bit more wiggle room to create a a more creative solution tested in the field without as much pressure from legislators or people up the food chain to deliver certain objectives. Do you think that's sort of a fair summary of of the nonprofit world specifically?
0: To some degree, obviously, we still have to be accountable to the people (laughs) who do give us resources. And a lot of the resources we do get are from government. Mm. But I think the way we're able to do it is that we collaborate with the type of donors that share the same vision that we have. And I think if we're able to introduce innovation and agility in our work and prove out that It's important to have adaptive management or think about things in a new way. The whole purpose is to do things better and to advance in the type of tools that we use or the methodologies that we use or the approaches that we use. If you think back to the 1940s or 50s and 60s where humanitarian aid was just throwing bread and rice and oil off the back of the truck into Mm -hmm. communities, it's progressed a long way to be much more sophisticated, more effective, more efficient with deeper impacts. And that takes time, but it takes people who are testing out new things all the time to make that progress. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I wanted to ask one more question about the nature of aid and development work specifically, and then I'll go to our closing question. I think global aid and development is an extremely compelling path to solving a lot of global challenges. And I keep saying the word global challenges because that's sort of the framework that Boulder uses to help people understand the world and the issues they're in. I'm curious your thoughts on if there's someone who wants to solve inequality or solve climate change, help solve these macro issues. Do you recommend that they, pursue aid and development work as sort of the most powerful approach to those issues? Or is is the answer not quite as simple as that?
0: It's not as simple as that. I would say that the aid and development world is one pathway or vehicle to be able to look at solutions. But I would suggest that people, again, invest in things that they're passionate about, But also, more and more so, we're seeing the need for people with strong technical skills that can move between many different types of uh, professional environments. So, for example, in, in the aid and development world, we need people who understand climate change. And that's just as applicable to a government trying to implement the Paris Accords as it is to a private company trying to generate types of renewable energy it's it's not just a silo type of work or profession but increasingly drawing from a different a wider set of skill sets that are important to solutions such as climate change people that know business development and financial services people who can negotiate and mediate conflict people who can help build political systems at a local level civil society into decision-making, people with those type of skills are going to be needed everywhere, regardless if it's relief and development. So I would say that it's more important to focus on what type of solutions you can provide in different fields and then see if aid and relief is an area of work you'd like to be involved in. It could be that you could apply those same skills right at home and still have some tremendous impact.
1: Great. And to close, I always like to ask your vision for the future of your work and potentially what your work could contribute to in the coming years. So for that, I I reference Mercy Corps' mission and its goal to build secure, productive, and just communities. What, in your view, will the world look like if and when Mercy Corps achieves that goal?
0: Well... Uh, You know, my crystal ball is sometimes foggy, but sometimes there's (laughs) points of clarity. I think that there are a a few things that we need to focus on. And and I think that if we're able to address, we can see progress and change. Obviously, there's these chronic crises around poverty, conflict and, and poor governance And if we realize our mission, we will see a decline in the micro and macro conflicts, fueling instability, a decline in poverty and inequity, and the emergence of stronger citizen-led governments that can help their people break negative cycles that they've been trapped in. And so for us as a mission-driven organization, these are areas that are at the core of what we do. And... It is hard work, it takes time, and it takes the partnerships to to do it. But it's what we think is worthwhile to really create the type of changes that people across the world demand. And we're just one actor amongst many that are pushing for those type of changes. And we feel that we have a value added to work with grassroots communities And connect their vision to people with power, people with influence, and people with resources. And so I think our work is more urgent than ever. And we see that coupled with the type of climate crisis that's occurring, where it's just not a news report from a faraway place, but impacts that we see right at home and around the world. And so... I think being able to make sure that the most vulnerable and and the most underserved populations that don't always have access to the resources can get them and are able to be agents of change to also be at the forefront of solving some of the world's toughest issues.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, that was Provash Baden. Provash, it was an absolute delight. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being
1: with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was ProVash Budden. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on global development with topics ranging from the interconnectedness of various global issues to the importance of and the keys to more effective global development. If you're considering a future in global development or even just care about the issues that global development focuses on, we think ProVash's perspective may be of great value to you. To access our show notes and other content related to Provash's story, please visit our website, boulder.world. There, you can also sign up for our newsletter, so you don't miss a thing. We would also love to connect with you on social media. You can find Boulder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at the username at going Boulder. That's G-O-I-N-G, Boulder. You'll find all our content and other fun stuff we're developing there. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the username at Will Fritzler. That's my name, W-I-L-L-F-R-I-T-Z-L-E-R. That's all for today's episode. I'm Will Fritzler, and on behalf of the Boulder team, thank you so very much for listening. Once again, I'm quite sorry for the long delay between episodes we've had, but of course, we're very excited to bring you lots of new content in the coming days. Be good to each other, and as always... Go older.